Welcome back to another episode of Mastering Retail, a new podcast series about how to succeed in the world of e-commerce. This podcast is brought to you by Digital Commerce at Essential. I'm excited to bring us farther along on our journey of learning about winning on Amazon. This week, we'll cover one of the two elements that make up the word retail, and that is retail. When we talk about what we consider to be quote-unquote retail, we think of it as anything that isn't paid search or anything that isn't paid or advertising dollars in general. Bet you couldn't have guessed that. You might hear retail and not really know exactly what I'm referring to. But as you just heard, we've got you covered. We're going to talk about everything that happens on Amazon.com that's not necessarily advertising or media and about how the two worlds collide. You'll hear our guests three core pillars of retail for success on Amazon, and we'll also cover made-up words, the links that some 3 piece sellers will go to smuggle products, and some other seemingly random but actually really relevant stories that you'll have to stick around for the full episode to hear. My name is Emma Irwin, your host for this series, and this is a really cool episode for me because my job outside of this podcast is to be a retail specialist that works across everything you're going to hear about. You've already heard his voice, but let me introduce you to the guest of this episode. I am Danny Hoffman. I am an Associate Director of Client Services at Flywheel Digital. At Flywheel, we kind of boil it down to client services is making people happy and making clients happy because we're net promoter score focused. But my day-to-day looks so different every day because a lot of that is related to whatever our clients' challenges are on Amazon. You might pick up on a theme here. But I, of course, had to ask Danny what the last thing he purchased on Amazon was. Ooh, okay. So I'm going to tie this back both to some like nerdy Amazon stuff to get us kicked off, but also to some personal stuff. During the peak of COVID when we were quarantining, the the main thing that was different for me was that my kitchen, which was always where it was, but I was working a lot closer to it than I had previously been it got a lot more use. And so I started cooking a lot more creatively and a lot more directly. And so I purchased a lot of cooking stuff on Amazon. So probably the most recent thing was my favorite cooking brand is OXO. So shout out to OXO. If you're hearing this, come work with Flywheel. I want to work with you. But my favorite cooking brand is OXO and they have a meat thermometer that I'm a big fan of. And so the reason why I'm going to tie this back to Amazon is because the concept of a meat thermometer for a home cook is sort of foreign because you're like, I'm going to do like the finger test and I should just know when a steak is perfectly cooked. But if I can measure it and I know the data and I can just stick a meat thermometer in the side of a steak and I can be like, it's perfect. I take the guesswork out. So tying back to the work that we do, if everything is data focused and everything is measurable, it removes all the potential mistakes and allows for us to think very scientifically. So last thing I purchased was an OXO meat thermometer. But I think that there's a a theme building here that I really like data and I really like measurement. Okay. And so next question, I'm going to ask you it, but we're going to come back to it at the end because it's a nice way to kind of circle back to things and close out the conversation. But something that's been on your digital wish list for a really long time, you just won't. It sits in a cart forever. You're really just whoever is watching your behavior online is like, please, for the love of God, just buy this so that we can stop kind of sending you ads all over the place. But Keep that in mind, and we'll come back to it. As promised, we are going to get to the three key focus areas for excelling in retail now. I, of course, did not make these up myself, so I asked Danny what they should be. I think of 
kind of three core tenets of retail. So the, the first one is orderability. The second one is, and I'll go through them, but orderability, findability, and buyability. And so what I mean by that is for a product to succeed online from a retail perspective, the very first thing that needs to happen before anything else happens is that Amazon needs to be able to get product in their hands so they can sell it for a vendor. So if your data isn't working, if you don't have strong data integrity, if you're not able to physically get the product to Amazon, we're talking about specifically Amazon and a 1P vendor relationship in this example. But if you're not able to specifically get the product to an end consumer via Amazon or retailer, if your supply chain is inefficient, if you're getting hit with a bunch of chargebacks, like if it doesn't work from an orderability standpoint, nothing else happens. So that's baseline. Second is findability. So you can get it ordered. That's great. Can somebody find it? And so that comes back to the search terms that are relevant to that particular product. But if no one's finding the product, it doesn't really matter if Amazon can order it from you or not. If it's not getting in front of anybody, no one's going to buy it. And then the last layer is buyability. Um, so we'll get into like buy box stuff and availability and all that I know, I know in a bit. But the pillar is, okay, so some Amazon's able to actually get the product in hand and sell it to a consumer. A consumer is able to find it. But if consumers are finding it and they still don't like it or they still won't buy it, then none of it is worth anything. So to me, I see those three things as the pillars of everything we do when we talk about retail or catalog or SEO management. Let's take a pause here because I won't leave you hanging without a definition. Danny used the word incrementality, and we hear incrementality a lot when it comes to Amazon. So I asked him to define it because everyone defines it a little bit different, and it even takes a few different definitions to actually understand what this word is trying to mean. People are going to use this word, then I'm going to use whatever words I want. But the word incrementality is actually not an English word. Incrementality is totally fake. The word incremental is real. But incrementality is just, you know, nonsense hybrid jargon. So if that exists and is used widely, then I'm going to say whatever I want. So incrementality in general is the idea that the sales that you're driving or the visibility that you're driving is new and incremental relative to someone would otherwise be getting. So the easy way of thinking about that, this is not the be all end all of incrementality, but the easy way of thinking about that is almost like the way that consumers search either for your brand or for the category. So I'll go back to OXO because they're my favorite and they already got a shout out. So, you know, at this point, they might as well sponsor the podcast. But if I'm looking for kitchen products and I know that I'm looking for OXO products and I search OXO meat thermometer, that's not incremental because I'm already in market for a products from that brand. So though my purchase is one new purchase for them, me as a consumer is already someone who's likely going to continue to purchase OXO over time. If I search meat thermometer, category term, no brand associated, and I convert on an OXO product, now I'm significantly more incremental than I was before to OXO because I'm someone new that was now pulled into the brand and I might be a lifetime user who's going to shout it out on an essential podcast. So that's kind of in, the, in general how I view incrementality made up word again. But it's not necessarily a one-time hit, but it's progressive over time. So there are different layers of it too. So there's that branded search, there's that non-branded search. There's somebody that you were able to trade in with DSP on a, you know, so who's searching the category, but maybe converting outside of your particular product. There's trial driving. There, there's all these different layers of incrementality that exist, but it's essentially how do you get as many new users and new consumers to your brand as possible that are building on your baseline from what you previously had. Beautiful. That was better than any Webster definition that doesn't exist. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, every time I type it into a deck, I still get like the red lines underneath. So, you know, eventually I'm going to have to just get over the fact that it's not a real word, but it still irks me every time I see it written. Now, it should be pretty clear what incrementality means. So let's return to Danny's three core tenets of retail. I'll remind you that those are orderability, findability, and buyability. I asked Danny to further elaborate on findability. Findability has so many different layers. I think the, the most obvious one and the place where I usually recommend brands start when they're rethinking their Amazon strategy is search. How are consumers searching? What are they specifically typing in? What are they looking for when they get there? But then there's also other layers too in terms of other placements in search, the editorial recommendations placement. That's something that companies like you know Seller Rocket is working on in terms of being able to work directly with some of those affiliate partners and some of those some of those folks who own those placements. But then there's also deals and promotions. And I think this is also this is one of the cooler ones because it plays directly into Amazon's algorithm, which is geared toward search being how do I get the best possible customer experience happening? And the best possible customer experience is a lot of different layers, but a lot of it's related to, do I have enough ratings and reviews that consumers are willing to purchase my product? And do I have the right price point? And that price point is so manipulative because that's related to the price on Amazon. It's related to the price everywhere else. But if my price lowers and the basic economics of price matching off-site happens, my price goes from $10 to $5, the Amazon algorithm is actually going to favor that product and shoot it up in search sometimes too, unless it reaches a certain profitability wall. But with deals, I think the other impact is obviously it increases the likelihood someone's going to see a product and it's going to shoot up in search. But the second most traffic page on all of Amazon outside of the gateway is the deals page. So consumers will show up to Amazon and they'll kind of scroll through and they'll look at all the deals and all the potential things that are on discount. And that's another way of gaining visibility that isn't through search as well. So that's, I, I know that was a lot, but that's just in general, the sort of the tip of the iceberg of how we view findability. In this podcast, everything sounds really nice. You might've noticed, but that's because we edit it. Sometimes we just screw up in the middle of our conversation. Um, sorry. Pause for a second because I lost my train of thought. Do you mind repeating the second part of your question? Oh, God. <laughs> the problem is I never remember the questions that I asked. It was, it was about profitability and assortment. Um, I had a point I wanted to make. Luckily, we have an amazing sound designer that can take all of this out. Thank you, Edis. And now let's get back on track. I wanted to move our conversation into assortment and profitability, two more important pieces of the retail pie for winning on Amazon. So I asked Danny to pretend that we're talking about a CPG manufacturer selling snacks. The assortment of products that this manufacturer offers to different retailers is going to vary. For example, you'd probably be sending and selling single bags of chips to a 7-Eleven versus maybe a multi-pack of bags to Amazon. Why? Seems like a simple question, but it's actually quite loaded. And I, of course, knew that. Danny breaks it down into layers. So this is a really interesting question and one I've actually been thinking a lot about. So historically, I think the progress with profitability is that Amazon, with the swing pendulum between profitability and selection focused, they push vendors to either be more profitable and create this golden skew. It's like somewhere between $15 and $20. It's a multi-pack. It's you know highly rated. It, it basically it checks all the boxes in terms of being able to be effectively profitable over time. So the, the other layer of assortment that we're seeing kind of change recently has been the impact of quick delivery and the impact of Instacart, honestly. Um, because a lot of consumers are able to get product within sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes a couple of hours. 
their their behavior on site has been shifting. And it's really interesting as it relates to profitability because it kind of it goes back to this concept of that golden skew, that fifteen to twenty dollar price point, that very highly profitable potentially multi pack. If consumers are able to get product in the same way that they would in store, that they would take it off a shelf as a one, why wouldn't they just purchase a one online too? And I think that's that's kind of the emergence of some of the you know the fifteen minute stuff like GoPuff and the quick delivery, um, or even the several hour stuff like Instacart. But Amazon's getting into the several hour delivery also. And the example actually came up anecdotally when I was at my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving, and my grandma, you know, doesn't really know what I do, but knows that I work on Amazon stuff, so always asks me Amazon questions. And she said, "I want to buy a jar of jam, but Amazon won't let me buy one jar of jam. They're making me buy six jars of jam." And her quote to me was, I will be dead before I use six jars of jam. So what am I going to do with six jars of jam? And I think it's, it, but it was a really interesting point because it was like, I'm sure six jars of jam is much more profitable for a company that's selling glass jars on Amazon. They're really not going to be effectively able to sell one at a time. But how do they also meet the need of a consumer who doesn't want six jars? And potentially they're shooting themselves in the foot because five of those jars may, might end up being just resold back on the same platform as individual SKUs. So I think as it relates to assortment, that's one of the larger challenges and one of the larger changes that we're seeing is profitability has kind of become this thing of like, how do I really toe that line between being what consumers actually want in terms of singles and low ASP? while also being able to effectively ship it to somebody and still account for all of those aspects of costs that built on, you know, if I were to just go to a store and pick it off a shelf and check out with it myself. That was a beautiful answer. I'm actually going to tag on with a story that I was excited to bring to this specific recording. So I wanted dark chocolate and I usually eat like one little piece of dark chocolate every night. That's my dessert. And I ran out. And so ordering... Well, I wanted one bar because I have to fly out of here in a few days. So I only needed one bar to hold me over. So I go on Amazon. I was like, I can wait until tomorrow. It can show up tomorrow, but I can only get like four to six of them. And that's like $20. And I was like, I want one bar. Can't find it on .com Amazon. If you go to Fresh, you need to hit the $35 minimum to get the free shipping. And it was late at night. So it wasn't going to come that day. And I didn't want to spend $35 on other things. And so I ended up on GoPuff, which I had never used before. But for $4 and like a $2 delivery free fee, I got my chocolate sent to me. And it just same situation as your like grandma and you thinking about it. I was like, interesting. Like I just did all of that even with all the knowledge I have about Amazon and all of the different options that are out there, I made my way through the this, but that, but this, but that, and got my got my chocolate bar in 15 minutes from GoPuff, and here we are. And it was the same brand as I would have purchased on Amazon. I just didn't want four of them. Yeah. I think it's also so interesting, too, because you were able to find what you were looking for at GoPuff on Amazon. Like, there was the same type of chocolate bar as Amazon. I think that's the... The key unlock in terms of assortment and kind of what Amazon has always touted themselves as being is being like the everything store. And when it comes to speed of delivery, kind of the, there's, there's this, the, the graph that I like is the, the visual of, you know, you can have your speed but you, and you can have your selection, but you can't have both. And now let's talk price and the special thing that can happen if your price gets too low, which is called getting crapped out. We'll explain that in a bit. But first, some basic knowledge. Amazon is a price follower, which means they'll match the lowest price they find on the internet 
And we also know that Amazon has always faced challenges when it comes to their retail profitability. They do, however, believe it or not, have a rock bottom threshold for maintaining some kind of margin of profitability on an ASIN. And if your product falls below that threshold, you are going to get crapped out. Side note, if you've been hearing us use the acronym ASIN and have followed along without actually knowing what that means, I've got you. Amazon Standard Identification Number. Think of it like a SKU specific to Amazon that Amazon assigns you. Don't worry about not knowing what that means because it's only an Amazon term. So crapped out, it sounds kind of crass when you don't really know what it is, uh, but it does, it's just Amazon's acronym for can't realize a profit. Some of it is algorithmic based. But what it essentially means is that Amazon has determined that your particular product doesn't meet a threshold for them in terms of profitability. And the phrasing around profitability that I really like that I'm going to borrow, and I think this was from... There's another podcast that I like in the in the e-com world, but one of the one of the phrases they use very regularly is for Amazon. Their slogan is, you know, we're the everything store, but their parenthetical slogan is your margin is our opportunity. So in general, that what they're basically saying to brands is like, hey, you're profitable. Can I take some? Can I have a, a percentage? Can I have a little bit more? It's kind of like the old, you know, you give a mouse a cookie story from when you were a kid. We next move into buyability. Because what kind of e-commerce podcast would we be if we didn't cover the buy box? Probably not a very good one. We're going buy box. Gotta do it. Let's do it. I can give the, for the audience, if you don't know what the buy box is, it's when you click on a product, there's a box over usually on the right on mobile, it's going to be below, kind of center below, but it's where you click add to cart. And so it, a lot more goes into buy box than you might than you might think. So I'm going to let you go into your interpretation of the algorithm that builds the buy box. The buy box is so important. And I'm glad we got to this with the orderability, findability, and buyability piece. I think this is the crux of catalog management and SEO is everything that we're doing is driving toward the eventual goal of one thing, which is getting somebody to click on that add to cart or buy now and then check out. That's it. Like everything we're doing is with that one eventual goal of getting somebody to actually purchase a product. So the buy box is crucial because it allows for us to, you know, actually be able to to finalize and take things over the finish line. So for me, that that's kind of the, the high level of ways that I see it. You might assume that because you're the manufacturer of a product, anytime someone clicks add to cart on your product, that sale goes to you. But that would be too simple. Duh. Danny explains what all actually goes into winning the buy box. So often availability and price are the two biggest ones. Totally agreed. It's sort of similar to how you think about availability in store also in the way that like if something's not physically on the shelf, I can't buy it. So if I don't have inventory at Amazon, someone can't buy it. So inventory inventory and availability does come down to buy box ownership significantly in terms of is, is there even a buy box or is it unavailable to purchase? Is it being bought from somebody else or is it being bought from me? Um, and then pricing also in terms of is that third-party seller, if I'm a 1P relationship with Amazon, is that third-party seller undercutting me in price? If so, what do I do about it? Which we'll probably get into. But that, that those are the two biggest ones. There are other layers also that are a little bit more implicit. They don't come up as frequently, but sometimes you will end up seeing, you know, for example, a, a, one part, a 1P vendor end up with buy box ownership, even though a third party seller is listed in the other sellers and actually is at a lower price. And so sometimes you think, oh, well, if it's pricing and availability, 
why is that that the lower price wouldn't just take into account? And so there are other things that kind of fall into that that as well. Like uh, sometimes you'll see a split buy box. Sometimes shipping speed and ability to fulfill quickly is involved. Sometimes seller ratings is involved. But the the hard and fast rule with everything Amazon, but the hard and fast rule specifically with buy box ownership that I always think of is: Does it tie back to Amazon's principle of customer experience? What is the best customer experience? And if that means can I get the product in a day versus five days? Can I get the product cheaper? Is it available to me right now? Is it in my geography? All of those. Am I a prime user? And I have a different experience with a buy box there. All of those different things are always tied back to that core tenet of customer experience for Amazon. And because you led me there, you're losing buy box to a 3P who's undercutting price. Where do you go from here? I love this question because it is everyone's question all the time as it relates to buy box ownership. And sometimes with buy box ownership, it kind of feels like you're sort of left out in the cold a little bit. Like, what what do you do? What what is even in my control? So, I have a, a short term solution, a medium term solution, and a long term solution. So, short term is kind of the band aid solution. Medium is like, okay, it's a little bit better, but it's not going to last forever. And long term is like, overhaul everything, fix it all, but it's going to take effort. It's going to take time. So, I'll start short term first. Short term solution would be. If the price is the issue and you're losing the buy box to a third-party seller, but you have inventory in, if pricing is the issue, we have seen some success. I would say our hit rate's probably like 40-50%, but it's better than nothing of launch a VPC. Make up for the make up for the difference in in price by launching some sort of a price discount on your buy box that'll allow you to kind of shift in terms of who's owning versus who's under. So we have seen that work in the past as well. And that also ties into that algorithmic piece of, hey, it's a great experience for the consumer. So they'll pull me into winning it. There are other ways to kind of gamify price as well. So in terms of understanding Amazon's price matching, you could talk to another retailer. You could potentially run a price discount and it would have the same effect as the VPC piece. Other short-term solution is you could, there, there are tools that allow for you and hacks that allow for you to see how much inventory third-party sellers currently running with buy out their inventory. Seriously, third-party sellers winning my buy box and they've got 10 units of a $10 product, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna spend $100 to make them go away as long as I'm confident that they're not getting their inventory from somewhere that's leaky for me. Because if, if, if I feel confident that they've got 10 units and that is it, they're done after 10 units, they'll never have more, then I can make them go away today. But I, there's no guarantee that any of that's true. So short-term solution, either affect the price, make them go away by buying out their inventory medium-term solutions. So some of these are some of the tools that Amazon has at their disposal. So things like brand registry or the Amazon transparency program, but essentially removing the sellers themselves. So not necessarily removing their inventory, but actually flagging them as unauthorized sellers, gating the inventory that Amazon is able to have for your product and removing some of the folks who might not be and then putting up guardrails around your particular product. So Amazon transparency program and brand registry, we've seen some good success with too. You just have to have a valid case. And there is some sensitivity in terms of what you can and can't do there. And there are some other companies that are really good at this in terms of going after specific 3Ps. So companies like Avoris or Apatu, where they'll sometimes send cease and desist letters to specific third-party sellers and basically legally scare them into leaving the platform. There are some ways of potentially manipulating that that fall into kind of the gray area. But those are the medium-ish solutions that you go after the sellers themselves long-term solution. And this is the hardest one. So a lot of times someone will say, how do I improve my lost buy box percentage? Then we'll say this and they'll look at us like, are you crazy? But the real answer, honestly, is 
take control of your assortment. Clean up your channel distribution. There, it might have fallen off the back of a truck. It might have been stolen. I've seen, I'll tell a story in a second about a crazy situation with stolen, with stolen goods. But it might have been stolen. You never know where they're getting it from. Cleaning up your channel is really important. And then the other is you can't have a price match if they don't have access to that particular product. And so what I mean by that is e-com specific assortment, retailer specific assortment. And that's the part where we usually get some eyebrows raised at us. But I've seen that be phenomenally successful in terms of price stability, in terms of buy box ownership, is if you take a product that is, you know, your existing product in store, but you slap a, a week's worth of free sample with it, and it's all of a sudden a bundle, that's something that consumers would never be able to match in store if they were buying it and reselling it on site. All of a sudden, you've gated so really simple things like that, but having custom assortment, having e-com specific assortment is the real, actually long-term solution in order to maintain buy box. With that, we are getting to the end of this episode, but we still need to figure out what it is that Danny has on his digital wish list that he just hasn't pressed buy on yet. Remember, that's the question that I always plant in the head of our guests at the beginning of the episode. I have actually had a, a messenger bag in my cart for the last six months because I got it on deal over, it might actually might be longer than six months because I think it was from Prime Day from last year. I got it on deal thinking I'm going to get this for my boyfriend as a gift for his birthday. And then I thought about it too long and then it wasn't on deal anymore. And so it's just kind of been sitting there. And then I teased out and was like, hey, would you ever use a messenger bag? And he was like, um... I don't know, maybe not. And so I haven't had the heart to remove it, but I haven't had the heart to buy it. So it's just it's just sitting there floating forever. And I'm sure like I'm going to I'm going to keep getting like notifications on Instagram and I'm going to keep getting followed around for this messenger bag, but I'm probably never going to convert. So I'm so sorry to them. I probably I don't even remember if I like, clicked on an ad or something, but I'm I'm hurting somebody's conversion rate. I'm so sorry. In that case, you know, it's not them. It's you. No, this this one's on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then one question that I forgot to ask you, but we have a loving of dog theme going. So, do you have it? You don't have a dog, do you? No, I dog sit everyone's dogs, but I should eventually just get my own. I feel like you should. You just walk right over to the office, bring your dog to the office, assuming that it's well better behaved than my dogs, and then how do the dogs in the office make you feel? Ooh, having dogs in the office is the greatest thing anywhere. Everyone's day gets stressful sometimes, and there's really nothing better than being able to decompress by petting a dog. Highly recommend. And, you know, I, I, again, I'll plug my dog sitting. I dog sit and I do it for free because the, the treat is sitting for a dog. But we we were created sort of in the in the shadow of Amazon seven years ago. So a lot of the things that we do is sort of similar to them. Obviously, there's many, many differences, but one of the similarities is the dog thing. So the, the 404 page on Amazon is always dogs of Amazon. And I would love a dogs of flywheel. I think we should figure it out. Like if Fila can't load something instead of like the little error box, you get a dog that pops up and it's like Todd saying, sorry. Yes, exactly. I would love that. That brings us to the end of another episode of Mastering Retail. The guest today was Danny Hoffman from Flywheel Digital, who really gave us some serious knowledge of retail and how important it is for the brands and manufacturers that sell on Amazon to understand it. Stay tuned for the next episode, which is all about media, which is our speak for retail media, or even more broadly, you could maybe even call it digital advertising. 
We'll first cover sponsored on Amazon, which is sponsored products, brands, brand videos, display, and beyond. I'll also dig into what is going on behind the scenes when we see ads for products on Amazon in all of the different places that you could possibly see an ad. My name is Emma Irwin, and the producer of this episode is Klaus Cancel, and our sound designer is Enos Satenji. If you're enjoying this series, please like, follow, and share the word. See you next time.